So here, Romans 9, Paul pushes the radical one-wayness of God's rescuing love to an uncomfortable extreme. And theologians and philosophers have been wrestling with these things and debating these things for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Herman Bovink, who was a Dutch theologian who has been dead for a long time now, began his book, his systematic theology, with these words. Um, let me see if I can get it right put it into everyday language because it was a little bit lofty. But he said basically this, um, the study of theology demands a radical commitment to mystery. You see, God is God and we are not. He's big and we're small. He's infallible, we're fallible. He's perfect, we're imperfect. He's infinite, we're finite. And so it just stands to reason that there are certain things about God because he is God that we will not understand and we just have to trust him and believe that he is who he says he is even if our fallen finite minds can't figure out everything. And what happens oftentimes is people read the Bible and they read a chapter like Romans chapter 9 and you know, they, um, they have God put in a box. There was a man by the name of J.B. Phillips who wrote a book a long time ago called Your God is Too Small. And basically what happens is we, we have these passages in the Bible that we understand, that we like, that we grasp, and they fit nicely and neatly into our little box, the box that we have put God in. And then we come to a chapter like this, and this chapter colors all outside the lines. And instead of just allowing it to be and believing that God is God and there are things that he reveals about himself that don't make sense to us, that he is grandly mysterious, we just sort of lop that stuff off and ignore it. Well, we can't do that if we're ever going to experience and live into the freedom that's been purchased for us. There is nothing more freeing than allowing God to be God. Giving up control, realizing that you can't do it, that you've never been doing it, and that you won't do it. Because the fact of the matter is, once you give up, you're free. Once you, once you give up and you give in, you're free, and Paul's intention here is to set us free by showing us a God who is infinitely larger than anything we could ever hope for or imagine. And so he pushes the radical one-wayness of God's rescuing love to an uncomfortable extreme here, but it's not intended to inspire theological warfare. It's intended to inspire spiritual worship. That's what this is intended to do. Too often we waste our time and our energy debating these things instead of just falling flat on our face and saying, you're huge and your grace is magnificent and your mercy is outrageous and we don't deserve one ounce of your affection at all. We are far worse than we think we are. God is far more gracious than we think he is. So 
He shows, Paul does in these verses, just how single-handedly we are saved by God, that God saves from first to last, and he not only saves single-handedly, but he only saves bad people. He saves the underdogs. We saw that last week. He saves the underdogs, the failures, the nobodies. Not the successful, not the bold, not the beautiful, not the ones who get it all right. God delights in rescuing those who get it all wrong. The bad people. And I mentioned last week that God only saves bad people because bad people are all that there are. And so he comes to the losers, which we all are. Remember, I've said this before when Ted Turner was being interviewed and said that Christianity is a religion for losers. And the Christian community, I mean, just went nuts. Who does he think he is? Calling us losers. We're not losers. We're winners. We've got our own TV networks. We've got our own political candidates. We are a force to be reckoned with, Mr. Turner. We're not losers. You're the loser. And I wanted to say, he's right. It is. Now, he was wrong to assume that he himself was not a loser. But the fact of the matter is, Christianity is a religion for losers, and we're all losers. It's for bad people, and we're all bad people. It's for failures, and we're all failures. And so God meets our mess with his mercy 10 times out of 10. 10 times out of 10. And I said last week that when it comes to the doctrine of election, God's sovereign election, we are scandalized in the wrong direction. Because where we are typically scandalized is when we consider who it leaves out rather than being scandalized by who it lets in. <laughs> that, that should be the scandal that rocks our world. I mean, who does he let in? The weak, the rebellious, the immoral, the adulterer, the liar, the thief, you, me. That's who he saves. In his book, um, Long Journey Home, Os Guinness writes this, and he says it perfectly, in my opinion. We cannot find God without God. We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that all our seeking will always fall short unless God starts and finishes the search. Without God's descent, there is no human ascent. The secret of the quest lies not in our brilliance, but in his grace. So this passage changed my life. I hated it. I mean, no one hated Romans chapter 9 in the history of humanity more than me a number of years ago, like six weeks ago. No, I'm just kidding. Like 20-something years ago. Okay, literally. You can ask Kim. Uh, I was up at night late wrestling day after day, week after week, month after month, because I could not reconcile what I had always believed God to be with what God was saying here. I couldn't reconcile it. And I had grown up in a Christian home where I was taught the Bible, and I went to churches that preached the Bible, and I went to Christian schools that taught the Bible, and I knew the Bible, okay? I mean, I was Billy Graham's grandson, for goodness sake. I knew everything there was to know about God. I inherited it. It's in my DNA. The blood's running through my veins, okay? So I literally read Romans chapter 9 and said, what? 
I mean, Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. Well, I wanted to rip Romans 9 out of the Bible because the God that was presented here did not fit into my nice little box that I could fully comprehend and understand. And so I wrestled, and I wrestled, and I debated, and I debated, and I argued, and I argued, not only with people, but with God. I couldn't get my little pea brain around what God was saying here, and it was frustrating me. This chapter seemed to paint a picture of a capricious God, a God who is arbitrary, a God who likes to create robots and then dictate to them what they can and cannot do. And if they do the wrong thing, he holds them accountable for it. I mean, I just, this didn't make sense. Okay, I I didn't like this one bit at all. It totally rocked my world. You see, um, and you've heard me say this on numerous occasions, but God's rescue of me was dramatic. It was dramatic. I mean, he saved me from a lot. He really did. He had given me like... We looked at last week, God gave so much to the people of Israel. He gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He gave them his special attention. He selected them out of all the nations in the world in the Old Testament and just showered his blessings on them, and many rejected him. Well, that was me. It's actually a worse place to be than someone who doesn't grow up getting all of these blessings and special attention from God. I actually received all of that stuff because of the family that I was born into, the home that I grew up in, and I rejected it, walked away, ran away, completely rejected it. And at 21 years old, the hound of heaven tracked me down, magnificently defeated me, raised me from death to life, rescued me. And for a while, I was so captivated and captured by the amazing, forbearing grace of God that I honestly could not think about it, sing about it, talk about it, hear it preached to me without just weeping. I mean, I was just so blown away by the patience and the pursuing grace of God. I just was blown away. I, didn't, I knew, I knew I did not deserve his affection. If anything, I deserved the exact opposite. And so for a while after God rescued me and opened my eyes and set me free, the only thing I could think about, talk about, was his grace. I was just amazed by his grace. His grace really was existentially amazing to me. I couldn't get, couldn't get past it, didn't want to get past it. Um, but after a while, the novelty of grace wore off for me, as it does for most of us. We think back to the time when God rescued us and we were just, many of us, in tears, hearts full of gratitude and appreciation for God's pursuing grace, his amazing grace, his rescuing grace, his resurrecting grace, and then we start living the Christian life. And now the focus shifts. And while we were amazingly happy and glad for the blood, sweat, and tears of God that got us in, the focus has shifted, and now it becomes all about our blood, sweat, and tears to keep us in. That's what happens. And as I've said before, the symbol of our faith shifts from being a, from being a cross to a ladder. And the focus of the Christian faith now becomes all about me and my life and what I do and what I don't do. And now I am the center of this Christian journey. It's all about 
me. You see, I, I was appreciative for God's work, but I was focused on my work. And that happens. That happens to all of us. We, we maintain a measure of appreciation for God's work, but for the most part, that was past. But in the present, our focus is on our work as if the focus of the Christian faith is living for God. Let me tell you something. The focus and the foundation of the Christian faith, hear it from me now, is not living for God. The focus and the foundation of the Christian faith is the glorious counterintuitive reality that God lived for us in the person of Jesus. Without that, there is no Christianity. We live our lives stumbling and fumbling along the way in response to the fact that God lived for us. But do not make the mistake, the narcissistic mistake of concluding that, you know, the focus and foundation of the Christian faith is living for God. You better hope it's not because you're really not doing that good of a job. Either am I. I mean, the beauty of Christianity is the fact that God, who spoke all things into existence, embodied human flesh and frailty in the person of Jesus and lived for us. That's radical. And that's the focus of our faith. You see, I had, I had come to view grace as divine assistance for the process of moral transformation rather than as a one-sided divine rescue. I had lost sight, in other words, of the beauty and the brilliance of Romans chapter 9. So Jerry Bridges puts it this way. My observation of modern Christianity is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of on His grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We seem to believe that success in the Christian life is basically up to us. Our commitment, our discipline, and our zeal with some help from God along the way. All of us fall into that trap. At some point in time, we start believing this because that's our heart's natural default mode. It's just our natural default mode to believe that this whole thing is about us. So though the Bible insists on our rescue being God's work from start to finish, we drift into concluding that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. And as I've said and just said a minute ago, we, we graduate so to speak, from a cross to a ladder in our approach to life. So these verses rocked my world because they uncomfortably showed me the size and scope of God's grace in a way that I had never seen before. Never. And after reading them and God finally pinning me to the ground, after reading them and being defeated by God, even though it's still racked with a ton of mystery, I don't understand it all, I don't get it all. There's parts of it that I don't like, you know? Um, God convinced me this is true. I am that big. I am that mighty to save. 
I did bring you into existence for the purpose of loving you and saving you. And as it concerns everybody else in the world, don't worry about that. I got that. Okay, I, you, what you need to focus on is the fact that I saved you. You don't need to worry about, you know, and we're going to get into this in a minute. You don't, you don't need to worry about my purpose and plans behind the scenes. What I have intended to do from eternity to eternity. Don't worry about that. That job is way too big for you to handle anyway. Let me be concerned with that. You just... You just focus your heart's attention on the fact that I saved you and you didn't deserve it. I brought you into this world to love you, to love you out of death and into life. I brought you into this world to shower my affection on you, to delight in you, to sing over you so that you could be mine forever that's what I want you to focus on. That's essentially how God wrestled me to the ground and showed me that it's not about my understanding or my comprehension or what I like or don't like or what you know, makes me feel comfortable or uncomfortable. It's about letting God be God and reveling in the beautiful fact that now I don't have to be because God is who he says he is. So after reading them, my, my estimation of God grew much larger and my estimation of myself grew much smaller. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Um, our understanding of God is like a, and our understanding of ourselves is like a pair of old fashioned scales. When, when our understanding of God goes up, our understanding of ourselves goes down and vice versa. And that's what happened to me. This painted a picture of God's size in a way that absolutely increased God's size in my heart and mind and decreased my size in my heart and mind. Um, Brennan Manning says, and this is so good, when I finally admit my shadow side, which we all have them, when I finally admit my shadow side, I learn who I really am and what God's grace really is. And this chapter revealed my shadow side. I'm small, I'm deserving of wrath and judgment, I'm deserving of death, and I've been given life. I'm deserving of condemnation, and I've been given deliverance. I, I'm, I'm deserving of bad, and I've been given good. I've, I saw my shadow side, and in light of my shadow side, I saw God's glorious Grace. I mean, this passage actually and eventually made me feel silly that I would ever want to shift the spotlight from God's action for me to my action for him. It made me feel silly. I mean, I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, it, the fact that my Christian life had become all about my action for God, that the focus had shifted, made me feel silly after reading this. Um, because this passage tells us about nothing except God's action for us. His behind-the-scenes, before-the-foundation-of-the-world action for us. And what's interesting is that this passage contains nothing but good news for people like you and me. We read it, and it sounds like such bad news, such controversy. 
Paul was a radical controversialist. Radical. I mean, he said things that I wouldn't say. And that's saying a lot, actually. Um, but I mean, he was a radical controversialist. And what's so, what's so amazing about this, the reason that this passage is such good news, but we don't hear it so much as good news, we hear it as bad news, is because we maintain central place in the story. And yet, when you really read this passage and you understand yourself to be a sinner deserving of nothing but death and judgment, and here you stand, alive and well because of what Jesus has done for you, it should be nothing but good news. But it's hard to embrace because it contradicts our default mode. We anchor our identity who we believe ourselves to be, who we want ourselves to be in our actions and in our choices. That's the way we live. We are what we do. That's the way we live our lives. We anchor our identity in our actions and our choices. But this passage anchors our identity in God's choice of us and his action for us. He does all of the acting and all of the choosing, and we do all of the receiving. And that just contradicts our default mode. Just contradicts the way that we naturally think, the way that we naturally approach life. It just contradicts the way we think about identity and value and those sorts of things. It shifts the spotlight away from our doing and our action to God's doing and God's action for us. So these verses are intended to make us aware of the fact that we are deeply loved by Jesus and have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That's the purpose of these verses. That's it. Okay, that we are deeply and eternally loved by Jesus and we have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. So in the face of all of our doing and striving and toiling and laboring and working, Romans 9 sings about a God who has done everything from before the foundation of the world for us. Which is amazing. Um, but it begs a couple questions. Does it not? You know? I mean, everything I've said so far is paints this glorious picture of who God is and his rescuing grace and his sovereign mercy and all of those things. And it should cause us to fall on our face and thank him from now until eternity for what he's done for us because none of us deserved it. And he came and saved me. He saved me. The chief of sinners, the least of all the saints, he came and saved me, which still blows my mind. And that's what it's supposed to do. That's what these verses are supposed to do. And so we revel in that and we say, okay, that's actually very devotional. And that actually makes me feel good and makes me feel lighter and makes me more appreciative for God. But it still begs a couple of questions. I mean, if this is true, for instance... If everything Paul says about God and the way God saves, how God saves, who God saves is true, that God is completely sovereign from first to last, that he saves from beginning to end, then it begs a couple of just basic questions. Why even pray? Why, why evangelize? Why even share the gospel? 
I mean, what's the purpose of telling other people about Jesus if this is true? God's got it figured out. He's going to do whatever he wants to do regardless of what I do. So what's the purpose? Why even pray? Why even talk to him? It seems like simple fate here. That we are robots. God operates on the economy of fate. And therefore, there's really nothing we can do, nothing we should do. So it begs the question, if this is true, why, why pray? Why tell other people about Jesus? What difference is it going to make at all if God's already figured everything out and determined what will be before the foundation of the world? What, what difference does it make? Well, I found tremendous help in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. So go over, go over. Keep going. Sword drill, first one to get it, gets a parking space. That's a Baptist thing, okay? Sword drill. You guys ever part of sword drills? You know what those are, you know? They, it's like a youth group thing. Uh, it's like, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, and everyone's like, and the first one who gets it gets like a hot dog. Or like a Christian CD. <laughs> the newest Michael W. Smith CD or something like that. Any of you grew up in church? <laughs> oh, boy. Jeez, what a lame, lame. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 2.13. <laughs> I was just checking. What'd I say? Corinthians, they all start sounding the same. They all end in Ian's. Um, Second Thessalonians, just checking. Proud of you guys. Second Thessalonians 2.13. This is just one of the verses that helped me wrestle with this question that I just posed. Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Boom. I mean, you can't get more clear than that. If you are a child of God, a Christian, it's ultimately because God chose you. We talked about this last week. When I said, I have no problem talking about the fact that I chose God and God chose me. I have no problem saying that because I remember a time in my life where I consciously chose God. But you have to go deeper than that. And you have to ask this question, whose choice prompted whose choice? When you back it all the way up to the causing choice, was it my choice of God that moved God to choose me? Or was it God's choice of me that moved me to choose God? So is the, does the causing choice rest with God or does the causing choice rest with me? Am I the one making the decisions and God is responding or is God the one making the decisions and I'm responding? Okay, so he says just plainly, and he, I mean, he just says it sort of as a sidebar. It's not even like a controversial thing. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, 
Notice what he's doing here. There are ends and there are means. And what Paul's saying in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, okay, is that God has not only determined the ends, but he has also determined the means by which he accomplishes those ends. So I chose you to be saved through, and he gives a couple examples of the way that God saves. Okay, now let me just unpack this for a minute because this is important. God not only determines the result of our missionary efforts and our prayers and our sharing of the gospel, but he also determines the means by which those results will come about. So God has determined to be the one who does the saving. But he has also and equally determined that the way he does the saving is through our efforts, through our prayers, through our telling other people about Jesus. God uses our prayers. He uses our presentations of the gospel to save those whom he has appointed to eternal life. So just as God has ordained eating as the means by which our hunger is satisfied, so he has ordained prayer and telling other people about Jesus as the means by which his eternal plan will come to pass. In fact, you can put it this way. God's ends... And God's means to accomplish those ends are so inseparable in the Bible and so interconnected in the Bible that you can say theoretically, if every single one of us stopped praying and preaching today, no one else would get saved. That's how interconnected God's means and God's ends are. All right? So um, it's inseparable. I mean, look at what Paul says in Romans 10, one chapter over, which we'll look at. In a couple weeks, Romans 10, beginning in verse 14 and 15. Look at what he says, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. True statement. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. And then look what he says. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I mean, Paul's saying, people don't come to know God unless you tell them. Unless you pray for them. That's how interconnected and inseparable God's means and God's ends are. So there's no such thing as, I'll just sit back, relax, and enjoy the show since God's going to do it anyway. This isn't fate here, robotic fate here. This is an organic God who chooses to use people like you and people like me to accomplish what he has already determined to do. And the way he uses us is real. It's not fake, you know. It's not just a stamp. It's not just a show. It's real. And so I find myself or friends, family members, whatever, children, you know, I mean, God, save them. Save them. Believing that if I am not praying for that, it might not happen. <laughs> There's nothing contradictory about what I just said and the doctrine of election that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 9. Nothing at all. You can affirm both 
We have to affirm both. Affirm the fact that God does the saving, but he uses our efforts to save. And if we don't make efforts, salvation doesn't happen. It's that simple. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it seems to be racked with mystery. But that's precisely what the Bible says. And so you just have to sort of take it at face value and go, okay, I, so this doesn't, not only that, but if God's not the one who does the saving, I say, why pray? I turn the question around. What, do, I, do my prayers have to be perfect? You know, what if I don't get it right when I'm telling someone about Jesus? I'm sort of fumbling and bumbling my words and I'm screwing it up. Oh my gosh, is this person going to go to hell for the rest of their lives because I didn't get it right? You know, I mean, is this person's eternal well-being riding on my shoulders? Is it all up to me? <sighs> let's hope not. I mean, seriously, let's hope not. Let's rest assured in the beautiful fact that God does the saving. And he uses, as my mom used to say, if God can use, if God can speak through Balaam's ass, he can speak through anybody, Okay. She loved, it's the only way she could get away with cursing was using like King James Bible language, you know? I told you the other one. No, I'm not going to tell you. It comes from my mother. You've heard it? Tell us. These are the sinners and these are the saints. It's clear. Um, anyway, so uh, the fact that he would use us seriously, is amazing to me. And the fact that we are unburdened and not having to do the saving is a huge, is a huge blessing. So um, Thomas Watson, Puritan, put it this way. I love this. And this really encapsulates everything I'm saying. It was the angel who fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. There you have it. That's the beautiful combination and the mystery. It was the angel that fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And it's your prayers that fetch the people that God has determined to save. Uh, it's, God, it's God who does the saving. But it's, it's our prayers that, it's our prayers that God uses to do what he's determined to do. So God unleashes his saving power through our prayers and through our presentations. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. What does Paul say? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. There was no mistaking in Paul's mind who, where the growth and where the rescue comes from. It doesn't come from me, Paul. It comes from God. But I planted, and my partner Apollos, he watered. We did our job, and God gave the increase. God did it. God did the saving. We played our part. So that's, we could go on and on about that, but I don't have time. Um, so it begs another question, and this was the one that really bothered me the most, more than any other one. What about people who don't know God? You know? Family members, friends, what about those people? 
I mean, my heart broke for some of those people when I thought maybe God didn't choose to save them. Well, that's mean. That's really mean. I love them. Why doesn't he? Okay? That's what really kind of messed with me big time. Um, And that was the question that plagued me the most. It plagued me the most because it requires the most trust in God. That's why it plagued me the most. Um, Look at John. Now go backwards. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 21. Beginning in verse 20. John 21, beginning in verse 20. This is after Jesus rose from the dead and he's now spending some time with his disciples before he goes back to heaven. And um, John chapter 21, verse 20, it says, Peter turned, his disciple Peter turned, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, John. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, how does that help? (laughs) I mean, in answering this question, you know, what about those who don't know God? How does that help? Well, This is how it helped me. God never promises to tell us everyone else's story. He just promises to tell us ours. I mean, he's saying to Peter, don't, it's not your business, man. Don't worry about that. I got it. You trust me? You trust that I know what I'm doing? And that what I'm doing is good? You trust me. Don't, don't worry. As for you, you just, you just follow me. You just stick by my side. Don't don't worry about his story. You You just concentrate on your own. You see, don't assume, this is the big mistake that I made, don't assume that if you have a friend or a family member who doesn't know Jesus, that they're not elect. Don't make that mistake. In fact, the very fact that God has saved you and put you in their life demonstrates that there's a very good chance that they are and that he's going to use you and your efforts to bring about their rescue. So don't don't make the mistake of thinking, well, but my dad doesn't know Jesus. He must not be elect. Don't, that's, it's not true. (laughs) Okay, Charles Spurgeon said that the courts of heaven will be infinitely more populated than the dungeon of hell. Okay, so don't make the mistake of concluding that your friend or your family member, I mean, don't. The hound of heaven pursues. He pursues. And he pursues people like you and people like me. I mean, the fact of the matter is God not only does the saving, and he not only saves bad people like you and me, but there's a good chance he's going to save the bad people in your life. Okay? I mean, he just, Steve Brown says it well. He says, God not only blesses his people, but he blesses those who are near his people and close to his people. 
I mean, think about it. Why, uh, why would God save you and put you into a relationship with or near to, you know, um, someone who does not yet know Jesus? I mean, they're going to hear things from you and see things from you. And, uh, you know, they might think you're really weird at first, but they're going to see some stability and some solidity. And they're going to see worship and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness beginning to emanate from you. And it's, what's that? So don't assume. um, I mean, the very fact that God has saved you and placed you in their life may indicate that they are elect and that God is God is using you to save them. So don't don't assume that. And um, if you're sensing God moving in you now, then this is God bringing to reality what he has determined to do with you from before time. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's like this is your moment. You're being defeated now. There is no outpacing the pursuing grace of God. You can't do it. You can't outrun the hound of heaven. It's impossible. I tried. (laughs) And many of you have too. You try. He wins every time. God wins every time. Every time. He, He accomplishes what he has set out to accomplish every time. He loves sinners to life every time. Every time, every time, every time. And this could be God's moment for you. I mean, the very fact that you're here instead of on your boat or sleeping in or, you know, at brunch somewhere... (laughs) Could that potentially mean that this is your moment? That God is actualizing for you right now what he has determined to do with you from before you were born. This could be your moment. For some it is. There's just no escaping. No escaping the pursuing grace of God. So... If you're a Christian, going back to the identity thing, if you're a Christian, here's the good news. Because Romans 9 tells us truth about God and his saving ways, mysterious as they may be, that God saves from first to last, that he establishes rescue from beginning to end, that God the Father appointed our salvation before time. God the Son accomplished our salvation in His time. And God the Spirit applied our salvation in our time. Beginning to end, first to last. All of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was involved in bringing you to life and setting you free. That's how powerful this rescue is. And if that's the case, if that's true, You know what that says to you and me? You know how that unburdens us? It tells us this. Who you really are has nothing to do with you at all. (laughs) Nothing. I mean, your identity is not ultimately anchored. Who you really are, your identity is not ultimately anchored in what you do or don't do, your good behavior or your bad behavior, what you can accomplish or what you have failed to accomplish, 
the way you look, your education, your background, what you've done, what you have failed to do. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Some of us are trying to establish our identity by running from things we've done. And some of us are trying to establish our identity by running toward things we feel like we need to do. And Romans 9 says, just get rid of it all. Because who you really are has nothing to do with you at all. Your identity is firmly anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. Jesus' performance, not yours. Jesus' obedience, not yours. Jesus' victory, not yours. That's who you are before God because of what God has done for you and to you from beginning to end. So here is here are lines, and I'll close with this, from a hymn that should inspire worship from you because of who God is and because of what God has done. This is... This hymn tells a story of all of us when it says, Though I was born an orphan, abandoned and alone, enslaved and bound in darkness, without a hope or home, the God of grace and mercy from his eternal throne ordained to be my father and claim me as his own. That I might be adopted, the father sent his son to live in full obedience and die for what I've done. Now through his resurrection, through faith with him, I'm one, a member of his household. I am an heir, a son. I didn't, I didn't adopt myself, and I can't be cast out. Because of election, I'm in forever. Forever. So on my on my good days, which are becoming increasingly few and far between, <laughs> on my good days, I'm not proud. And on my bad days, I'm not depressed. Well, what prevents me from that? First of all, that's not true. My good days, I do become proud. My bad days, I do become depressed. But if I stop and think about it for a second, I think it's just futile to be either proud or depressed because there's nothing to do with me. I'm in forever because I live my life, as do you, under a banner that reads, it is finished.